It is not death that man should fear, but he should fear never to begin to live. Hey, it's Michael. This is the human condition. The quote that I used actually is by Marcus Aurelius, the great Stoic. Let me reiterate that. It is not death that a man should fear, but he should fear never to begin to live. This quote has been used in a variety of ways. Richard Branson, I think, is one of the most prolific people who actually has his own version of this particular quote. But what I'm about here today is the shift, the shift in perspective, the shift in feeling invulnerable, the shift in invincibility to suddenly thinking, well, shit, I'm closer to the end than I am to my beginning. I suppose some people call this midlife crisis, right? Where we rush out and we buy a Corvette, the stereotypical band-aid of the man who has reached a middle age and wants to feel young again because young is the equality that we perceive as invincibility. Yet at the same time, we recognize individuals next to us falling ill, and dying. Memento Mori is another one of those great quotes that the moment in life can be taken away just in the next second. So what I'm trying to say here is actually that I've caught myself in the last number of years to think that I'm closer to the end than I am to the beginning, that something has changed in my life that I used to be able to just perceivingly or proverbially, if you will, rip my shirt open and bang my chest thinking that here I am, come at me because nothing can get me down. Nowadays, I'm finding myself more contemplative. I find myself trying to dig deeper, to think harder, to think more authentic and to think in a way that prepares me for something that is inevitable. None of us is going to stick around. I mean, inevitably, we are destined to return to dust. I mean, that's, that's something we all know, right? It's not something that necessarily comes as a big revelation. But the question is truly that the revelation is in the si inside of the idea that there is a sudden shift, a sudden shift where we live carefree, where we live without much thought, if you will. Certainly, we think about the future in terms of profession and in terms of making our way up the corporate ladder or perhaps starting our own company and making our way there. Some people are motivated by money. Others are motivated by change. Some people are motivated by both. But we don't really think about the other side. The other side suddenly kicks in overnight. For me, it started pretty much uh, when I jumped into the early 40s. I started thinking a little bit more about what is the second half of my life going to look like. And the further on I dug into my 40s, the more and more prevalent these thoughts became. What is the second half of my life going to look like? 
Is it another company that I start? Is it going back to corporate America? Is it staying in education as an educator in higher ed? Uh, should I go for another degree? Should I, what should I do? And to be honest, I don't have any answers. There, there are no answers. They're just contemplations because 99.9% .9 of human beings do not know exactly what their path is. You may be on a path, but it doesn't mean that you truly are on a path that you want. And that is what I'm trying to figure out. What the hell do I actually want? Do I want exposure, such as through this podcast, very limited, three or four listeners perhaps? Do I want money, fame? Do I want something to be left behind, a legacy? Do I want to write a book that at some point is going to be added to the National Library because that's where all the works are that have ever been printed? Or should it just be an ebook? What am I wanting to leave behind? Is it about legacy? Well, the point about legacy truly is that legacy ideally comes in a form of having your name on a building because this is what's said to be a legacy, that it is recognizable beyond the years that you spent on this planet. But is that really necessary? Does that really mean anything at all anymore to have your name on a building or is it just another building? I do believe that the legacy piece, and this is, I suppose, where I reach a little bit toward Gary Vaynerchuk, whose legacy, that's his idea at least, applies to as many people as possible to motivate them to do something. I believe that legacy in itself is in a smaller stipulation. What do I mean by that? Legacy is much like Kevin Kelly's thousand true fans, perhaps even smaller, the smallest vital audience, the smallest audience that you can possibly affect. That's your friends, your family, your loved ones, those who truly matter to you. And that's where Dunbar's number comes in. Dunbar's number says that you can only meaningfully converse and communicate with up to 140 people. Not a problem with that is social media takes this completely out of the equation. We are running after vanity numbers, as many people with as much reach and as much penetration as humanly possible. However, we can only truly communicate meaningfully with up to 140 people. And to be honest, I would even want to question that number because I sure as heck cannot meaningfully, and that means in depth, know someone and then truly communicate with that person on a level that far transcends the typical high-level, superficial, artificial, crappy, what's the weather like today, how is mom, how is dad, how is your job kind of conversation. I would say the number is probably in the tens, perhaps 15 or 20, because when we go back and we say, how many true close friends do you have? Close friends in the sense of, here's my checkbook, or for the lack thereof, here's my wallet, or here's my credit card, I trust you. I'm perfectly willing to put you into my power of attorney because I know that you have my true best interest in mind. I would be fine with you picking up my kids from school. I would be okay with you house-sitting. I'm okay with calling you when I have a problem, when I want to share with someone, when I need advice. And I know that the advice is built not with your projection upon me, but with your best interest in heart for me. Now, all those parameters combined 
let's truly look at how many people we have in our immediate vicinity that we can consider close friends. And I would argue that this number is fewer than 10. So what does it mean in terms of legacy? Ideally, this number of probably fewer than 10, give or take, it's this number, these amount of people that I have a tremendously positive legacy style influence upon. Those are the ones that I want to prop up. Those are the ones that I want to help to the next level, whatever their level is, because it is not my projection upon them. It is what they want to gain out of life and my opportunity to help them to get there. Because inevitably, even my best friends, that number that is probably fewer than 10, will reach the same point that I am at right now. Perhaps some have even surpassed it at this point, except we haven't talked about it yet. And the point that I'm talking about is that point where you consider that you, having been so invincible, so untouchable, so unbreakable, are suddenly thinking about what's next. What is the end game? So let's talk about that. What is the end game? The end game, to be honest, in my opinion, is happiness. However, the pursuit of happiness derives from something completely else. I don't think it's money. Money is a vehicle that perhaps buys you freedom, but that is not necessarily the equation of happiness. I do believe there is a precursor, a subset, the foundation that enables happiness, and that inevitably is purpose. Maslow had it right that self-fulfillment, self-actualization is the pinnacle of development, whether that's in the animal kingdom or most likely in the human area, in the human kingdom. We want to self-actualize and actualization inevitably is driven by purpose. So in other words, I got to know what the hell I want, because without me knowing what I want, how can I possibly actualize against it? Therefore, how can I possibly find my purpose? Now, before I go into the whole manifestation and I am better than X and fake it till you make it type of mumbo jumbo, let me explore the idea of purpose. Purpose means to do something that you want to do, even when things are not going well. You get up in the morning and you're looking forward to getting to it. Now, I'm not talking about passion. I'm talking about purpose, because purpose is independent from passion. It may have some intersections and it may run parallel to some degree, but at the end of the day, purpose is standalone. Purpose is when you get up and you know exactly why you're doing, what you're doing, how you're doing it, and you're trying to figure out what the next step is. So purpose means, at least to some degree, that your feet are firmly planted on the ground. Once you've attained that level, of comfort, that level of, well, purpose, happiness is inevitably the outcome because you know what your life, what you are all about. However, the challenge with this is we don't know what our purpose is anymore because most of us are confined to a cubicle. We rush into work, we try to turn our brains off because the work is just mind-numbing, we stare in the screens. We answer the phones, we build spreadsheets, we attend to meetings that are predominantly useless to us. And then we come back and we finish our job for, with it. for that we can go home at 4.35 p.m., what have you. Stand, sit in the traffic jam, listen to a podcast, perhaps such as this one. Then we get home, we sit on the couch, we watch TV, 
and we wait for the clock to turn enough to go to bed for us to start the next day. This, to the very majority, is not a purpose. This is making a living. But if you were to ask the cubicle dwellers of today, would you rather do something else? The answer would almost certainly be yes. I want to do something else because this seriously sucks. The only reason that I can actually get through it is because I need a paycheck, because my kids need to go to school, car payments, mortgage, insurance, health care. Yeah, I got to go back tomorrow at 8. I know, I know. Vacation can't, well, vacation is shit. Yes, I do have two weeks, perhaps three, but the problem is I'm so scared to take it because my employer could figure out that they can make do without my presence, which means I'm, ex I'm an expandable asset. I can be replaced. Job security goes down the drain. So we hustle back, we continue to work, we look at the screens, we answer the phones, we do the spreadsheets, and we attend to meetings. It's a very bleak kind of thought process, if you will, that describes for many people what the status quo is. And of course, you can replace the variables such as going to the office with going to the uh, assembly line with filling Amazon boxes for shipment or sitting in a truck delivering packages. The vast majority of Americans are not happy with what they're doing because what they're doing is not the equivalent of their purpose. It might be a different story for those who have a part-time job and the other half of their life is spent doing something that they truly love, whether that's being an internet marketer or a little league coach, anything in between goes. But perhaps there is something reminiscent of a purpose that makes them happy, that makes them feel content where they can look themselves in the mirror saying, yeah, that day was worth it. Chances are you are not one of them. Now, truth be told, I am also not one of them. Yes, I'm teaching, which is very much my passion. Ever since, every, every time I'm stepping up in front of a classroom, I am terrified. Not because I'm ill-prepared, not because I don't know my subject matter, but because I want to do better. And there's something terrifying about stepping up in front of an audience of hopefully hungry students, uh, freshmen up to uh, seniors, in the higher ed perspective, in, the, in a college, in a university locally here to me, and wanting to make sure that they get what they want and then more. Because after all, it is the, ex the educational experience that I want to deliver. And with that comes a responsibility. And that responsibility, quite frankly, is terrifying. So every single time I step up, even though I do believe that this is in part my purpose, I'm happy with it. I don't do this for the money because... I can guarantee you I'm not doing this for the money because there's no money in it as an adjunct uh, and tenure track or assistantship professor, uh, professor positions are nearly impossible to get these days, or at least very difficult. So it's not a money, it's a passion project and I love it and I really like to do it. But with that comes the fear, if you will, to perhaps disappoint not just my audience, but also disappoint me and through that disappoint my passion, which makes me eventually question whether I'm doing what I'm supposed to be doing. Yet I return to it, which is indicative that even when things are not going right, this is still my passion. My question goes back to you. Have you found your passion or at least have been able to execute against your passion, at least to some degree? 
to come full circle here, why does this matter in terms of death and passion and where we're going with it? To again, use Marcus Aurelius here, it is not death that a man should fear, but he should fear never to begin to live. Through my ability and opportunity to teach, I am living. It is not death that I fear, it is not being alive that I should be fearing, but thankfully I kind of staved this off by doing something I'm passionate about. I'm working with people. I get to teach, but not teach to them or for them or lecture them, but to teach with them, which is also in itself a rather interesting concept that essentially my classroom wasn't exactly expecting. I'm working with them. I don't have them do the work for me or I don't impose upon them certain traditional methods. I want them to immerse themselves. And that makes me feel good. So it's very self-serving in that instance. But it also is indicative that I have found my passion because I'm living. I feel alive. How does this matter in the perspective of death? Well, it's unfortunately quite simple. It took me decades, literally I kid you not, decades to figure out what I'm passionate about. I was never an academic to begin with. I shunned academia. I thought I'm above that. I thought I'm smarter. I can learn through life until I realized, well, maybe there is something to it. And I returned to academia and got my degrees and then hoped that I can get my entrance into teaching. And I have. And I have found my passion. However, that passion truly only came in the second half now of my life, past the age of 40. So somewhere in there, there is a shift, there is a switch from feeling invincible, from feeling that the world is my oyster and I own it, to I only have so much time left and I better somehow make it work. So what does it mean? What does it mean to think about death to that degree? To begin with, thinking about death motivates us. If we'd live for eternity, we'd probably look at life in a much different perspective. Isn't that right, Highlander? Reference to the 80s, if you follow my drift. But thinking about death motivates us to get something done, to activate and perhaps to actualize. It's also that when you really think about death and what happens after we die, we get cremated, we jump in a box, or perhaps if it is an accident, we may never be found. What really matters at that point? What truly matters? It's the little things that stay little. It's the small stuff that stays small. It's things like that that really don't matter when we leave. So the question is, what are the big things? What, what should we build for? Well, for me, it's education. For me, it's teaching. For me, it is influencing tomorrow's minds. I don't know what it is for you, but perhaps that's worthy of being thought about. Thinking about death, I suppose you, you find yourself appreciating things that are around you, because if not, what do you live for? So if anything, look at the person who means the most to you, husband, wife, partner, children, parents, and show some appreciation because they may not be here. And when they are not here, it's fundamentally too late to be showing the appreciation. What does it mean then to think about your own death? Well, two more things. 
live with intention and this is thing this is a, a a stereotype a saying that i just that gives me a knee-jerk reaction because what does it mean to live with intention this is where i want to revert back to live with purpose of course purpose requires intention blah 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 but truly the idea is first you got to find your purpose once you found your purpose you can intentionally apply it so the question goes back to the root what is your purpose again it took me decades to find out what it is for me you may have arrived at that level sooner you may arrive at it later however the last point about this is as we're all playing against time my biggest request my biggest hope for anyone who has made it through the last 20 minutes of my thought process here is that you do one thing for those who matter the most to you that your purpose that you having found your purpose allows you to approach them to help them find their purpose it's michael zeitgeist and the human condition this is all about death and purpose music by tofa williams studios i'll catch you next time